Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the war in Ukraine with Dr. Adam Stolberg, Sam Nunn professor and chair at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and National Field Director Phil Smith join the conversation. Dr. Stelberg is an internationally recognized expert in geopolitical strategy, security affairs, nuclear nonproliferation, and uh, and energy. Uh, He has worked very closely with uh, former Senator Sam Nunn, who, of course, is a former co-chair of the Concord Coalition, in uh, drafting policy recommendations and and background studies on uh, on these topics. Uh, And uh, he has been the chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs since July 2019. And all of that makes him a perfect guest to uh, guide us through the many security, economic and geopolitical implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Dr. Stelberg and Tori and Phil, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Bob. Thank you. Well, um, Dr. Stelberg, we really appreciate your coming on with us today. We have not talked about the war in Ukraine very much, but it obviously has an effect here at home. And so we wanted to talk to you uh, a little bit about why Americans should care and uh, what are the uh, implications uh, worldwide, just uh, geopolitical and uh, perhaps some of the economic effects. So let me just begin with a very broad, big picture question. Uh, you know, wh- what do Americans need to understand about what's going on in Ukraine right now? One of the most profound elements of this war, and it is a war of choice by Russia and its invasion of Ukraine, uh, is that it's emblematic of a changing international system that has been underway, under, you know, undergoing change for a number of years now. And this is really a gross manifestation of it. And I think it reflects uh, the fact that we are in a period of protracted great power competition that does not necessarily echo the Cold War and certainly not the period Uh, following the immediate collapse of the Soviet Union and what we call the post-Cold War period. Like the Cold War, we are in a period, I think, of pronounced great power competition. But unlike the Cold War, that was marked by sort of two bipolar superpowers that stood head and shoulders above all others across all indices of power, you know, military, economic, demographic, etc., Uh, We now are situated in a world that is marked by gross asymmetries, Uh, asymmetries at the global level, like the United States is head and shoulders militarily over other countries. Our economic power is much greater than Russia's economic power. Uh, So 
Uh, there are asymmetries that exist across different parts of the world. Uh, there are asymmetries, not just in power, but also interests and stake. Uh, Ukraine, for example, matters much more to Russia than it does to the United States, both in terms of material uh, uh, issues as well as even principles uh, for Russia. Uh, so you've got gross asymmetries of power, not parity that existed in the Cold War. You have power practiced within interdependent relationships across multiple issue areas. So before the United States and the Soviet Union were not interdependent. The only way we were interdependent was actually on the nuclear level because we could threaten to destroy each other and our security was interdependent. But economically, we weren't inter interdependent. Politically, we weren't interdependent. Our energies, I mean, there were some energy relationships that existed between Europe and, and the Soviet Union, but they were not interdependent in terms of their, their, uh, their national energy security. And so, but today, uh, the competition is waged across many different policy issue areas uh, that are tied fundamentally to each other. And so the competition that is practiced is within interdependent relationships. So that's a very uh, big difference, not only asymmetries, but those asymmetries within interdependent uh, relationships. And then, of course, we're in a world where we're witnessing uh, tremendous uh, uh, expansion and, and uh, emergence of different technologies uh, that from information to uh, in the bio uh, sciences uh, that in space. And so the competition is taking place across multiple domains in a very fluid and dynamic context uh, where power is shifting and asymmetrical and relations are interdependent. And that's the landscape that this war is taking place. So then the question is, why does this matter to the United States? Yes, it's very clear, as I mentioned, uh, material interests in terms of our, our own national economy and even our national security and survival are not fundamentally at stake with Ukraine. We have norms and principles that are at stake, such as sovereignty and human rights issues and obviously uh, standing up. Uh, to genocide. So we there, there are principles and norms that matter uh, fundamentally to us, but not necessarily uh, economic and uh, uh, political interests or strategic interests. The problem is in this world of interdependency that I've mentioned in great power competition, the boundaries of those competitive impulses are not clear. And as a result, we can inadvertently escalate very quickly into areas that are that are, we're seen to be secondary interests into primary interests, such as with escalation of the conflict in Ukraine from a territorial war over parts of Ukraine to the escalation and the introduction of new technologies or possibly tactical nuclear weapons. All of these increasingly draw our national interests, our reputation, uh, our relationships with our allies, uh, you know, they bring them uh, to the fore. And so the problem that I think Ukraine, you know, suggests or exemplifies is one, this fluid and transitional state of the international landscape where boundaries are not clear, such that our secondary interests can inadvertently escalate and put and the conflict can inadvertently escalate to turn our secondary interests into a primary interest. 
that will be on par with the principles that we hold near and dear, such as the promotion of liberal economic and political order, respect for territorial integrity and sovereignty and human rights. And so that's what's at stake, I would say, fundamentally uh, with this war, not to mention the fact that this war could bleed over in terms of its economic impact uh, to the United States and our allies, as well as uh, any possible uh, uh, political instability. Well, I know at the at the end of the Cold War, the uh, the idea was to bring Russia into that post Cold War strategy, uh, you know, structure as a partner uh, rather than as an adversary. And it it seems that that, uh, you know, the idea being if we incorporated them into the economic um, world order, that uh, that uh, we wouldn't have things like this <laughs> happening. And it, 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 it seems like that effort has has failed. Um, but uh, uh, one particular thing I wanted to get your opinion on is, you know, we've heard this week that Finland and Sweden are about to join NATO. Um, and that's that would be a fundamental shift. Is that uh, is that sort of an escalation, do you think? Or um, well, what, what are the implications of that? Well, let me tackle the first issue that you mentioned, which is the missed, presumably the missed opportunity for integrating Russia into the world order or the, the liberal economic and political order in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I would argue that that is a very Western view. From the Russian perspective, right, the missed opportunity was not that Russia was not fully integrated into that order. It's that we, together with Russia, didn't come up with a new uh, Euro-Atlantic strategic order, such that they, their view, is, so our view, of course, is that we won the Cold War, and uh, with that victory comes the expansion of the political, uh, the liberal political economic order, you know, on the security front that's manifest by the expansion of NATO, as well as our market and democratic uh, systems. From the Russian view, and I'm not just talking about the Kremlin's view or the perverted views that Putin espouses today, but the Russian strategic community sees that they too, Russia too, was a victor in the collapse of the Soviet Union, where Russia uh, cast off the yoke the, that was of this distorted ideology uh, and then was ready and poised to work with the West to fashion a new Euro-Atlantic security architecture that would not just be an expansion of the Western liberal uh, order. And so from their vantage point, yes, this is a 30-year problem that we have, but it's not the 30-year problem that we failed in terms of integrating and advancing markets and democratic institutions and integrating them into NATO. That is not how I think that they see it. And as uh, that is that is a view shared outside of the Kremlin. I mean, that's a uh, so that's a longstanding issue. So then you raise the particular issue about NATO expansion uh, and the current uh, issues before us, Finland and Sweden, which do mark on the one hand, um, obviously a complete strategic, um, you know, misstep or a strategic uh, uh, failure uh, of Putin's um, incursion. In Ukraine, because right, he's bringing uh, NATO even closer uh, to their borders. But on the other hand, I think that 
Uh, and you see in the way that they're even Putin is is talking about this. Initially, there was a lot of bluster and a lot of threats. And now it's sort of, well, let's wait and see. You know, Finland's had relationships with uh, with NATO over the last decade. They've issued statements. Uh, but he doesn't see that necessarily as a direct threat for him. It's what's going to happen uh, with that membership is is NATO is Finland going to change from a territorial defense to another type of uh, defense posture, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that they've left the door open. But again, my concern is if this is seen and ultimately practiced as just simply NATO expansion and the NATO sort of uh, issues of 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 setting postures are not uh, con- do not take into consideration the Russian security interests, uh, then I think that this would be a problem down the road, irrespective of whether or not Putin's in the Kremlin or not. And so it's not, I think, and this gets to a much bigger problem that maybe we'll talk about, which is, you know, what is victory in this war and where do we go beyond this? Because if it's just simply an absolute where Russia is defeated or vanquished, they're not able to prosecute these kinds of uh, uh, military operations and NATO just moves its borders closer to, to Russia. I think we're just buying time for another conflict um, in the, you know, once Russia, you know, uh, has the material uh, capacity to do that. And they certainly will practice cross domain and cyber, uh, other types of competitive things. But if we seize the opportunity to go back 30 years and rethink what a Euro-Atlantic security architecture should be that takes into account the security interests of all of those players, well, then we may have an opportunity. And this NATO, uh, the NATO membership of Sweden and Finland would not necessarily carry the sting uh, moving forward uh, that uh, that maybe some of the more conservative forces in Russia uh, may may adhere to today. Dr. Stolberg, you you mentioned in, in your beginning comments about the great power competition, and but also the interdependence of, of economies in this conflict. You know, one of the big question marks, at least for me at this point, is the role of China or the the non role of China in this conflict. You know, in the 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 Olympics that uh, preceded the the invasion, you know. China and Russia went to great lengths to shake hands and declare their partnership and their everlasting friendship. Uh, and here we are now. And to, to my untrained eye, I, I'm not an expert in any means. It seems to me that China is pretty much sitting on the sidelines here as its buddy Russia is getting pounded by Ukrainian militia and regular army. Uh, to what do you attribute this? Is it because they sort of did a calculation on the interdependence of, of economies? What, what, what do you think is going on here with China? Well, I think you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of my perspective. I do think China, I, I think there's a lot less to the strategic partnership that knows no boundaries between uh, Russia and China. I think if you looked that most of the the biggest arrangements between tangible arrangements between Russia and China have been signed when Russia is weak and and China extracts, let's say, a very favorable set of uh, energy prices for its the gas pipeline uh, that is constructed uh, eastward. So, I think that these are there's a um, I don't want to say a marriage of convenience, but they share a general strategic concern about what they perceive to be a um, revisionist uh, United States and its allies in terms of promoting 
uh, a Western uh, political and economic order that does not respect uh, the national and regional interests of countries like uh, Russia and China. And so they both share that strategic disdain and common commitment to pushing back against uh, those geostrategic pressures. But beyond that, when we get to the sort of brass tacks of, of economic relations or energy relations, I think China is very uh, considered in the way that they go about. Because one, they don't necessarily share Russia's view of the world. I think uh, one can argue that Russia has very much of a regional sphere of interest and China uh, sees itself as much more of a global uh, power in that regard. They're very active in China and Russia's backyard in Central Asia uh, and spreading uh, through to, to Europe and also in the Arctic. So there are potential bones of contention between those two. China also has historically been very responsive and I dare say compliant with Western sanctions, largely because Chinese companies and China's economic interests are very much bound up uh, with US economic interests, unlike with Russia. And so China is loath uh, necessarily, on the one hand, they're not going to politically sign up to those sanctions, but de facto, they're not going to necessarily challenge uh, those sanctions. Um, and then finally, you know, unlike uh, Russia that has, and Putin in particular, that has not recognized Ukraine as a sovereign state uh, or anything other than really a part of Russia, that uh, China has recognized uh, Ukraine as a sovereign state. Uh, China trades heavily uh, with Ukraine or was prior to uh, February of uh, this year. And then there's the last point about whether or not uh, China is, what lessons are China, is China drawing from the war uh, in Ukraine for Taiwan? And I would argue that um, mostly there's probably watching the limitations of the procurement of very fancy technologies and trying to wage an offensive campaign. And I think the costliness of this territorial war for Russia is giving pause rather than emboldening China in their appetite, or at least their timing, uh, for uh, any sort of expansionist uh, you know, incursion on, on Taiwan. And so I think they're doing what you're saying. They're sitting on the sidelines. They're certainly not signing up to our diplomatic initiatives, but I think there's a lot less to the rhetoric about the commonality, the strategic commonality uh, of with Russia. There are some areas that they're uh, de facto going to, uh, you know, sort of continue along the current course, like abiding by the, the sanctions. Um, on the other hand, they're also are going to be keen to watch on the sanctions front if you know, there's a lot of de-risking by, by companies and with the financial sanctions. What are the implications of those financial sanctions? Is it going to lead to other currencies uh, emerging that creates more of an opportunity for them? So I think that they're much more opportunistic uh, than, you know, strategically tied to the hip with Russia in, in, in uh, you know, in backing them in this conflict. I want to follow up on that real I'm sorry. And we'll, we can follow up after the break. <laughs> We're going to have to take our 
our first break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and National Field Director Phil Smith and I are discussing the war in Ukraine with Dr. Adam Stolberg, Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. This week, we're talking about the war in Ukraine with Dr. Adam Stelberg, chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. I'm joined by our policy director, Tori Gorman, and national field director, Phil Smith. Uh, Tori, before the break, you were going to follow up on a question, so go right ahead. Jump yeah, back I just in. Wanted to, I wanted to revisit China real quick, just as a, a follow-up. Uh, I'm curious as to whether you think that this the the action in Ukraine has sort of given China a brief pause in its approach to Taiwan. And I'm wondering if you think that's just sort of a, a serendipitous happy stance for the State Department, or do you think when the Biden administration was contemplating a response to Russian aggression in Ukraine, they thought about this as a way to send a signal to China without having to go through the disruptive, destabilizing economic effects, for example, of sanctioning China? <laughs> Um, is this was this the goal all along that they were sort of thinking much broader and much longer term? Or is this just sort of lucky happenstance that you know we, we sort of get a twofer for this one and that all right, we're 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 pushing back against Russia and Ukraine. And oh, by the way, it's you know, it's making China think twice about what it's gonna do with Taiwan. Right. That's a great question. Um, it's probably a little bit of both. I think, you know, if we recall early on in the response to Russia's incursion in Ukraine, uh, there was a sort of an informal delegation that was sent uh, to uh, Taiwan to sort of make the make the draw the link, send a you know, an informal signal uh, about the United States uh, commitment to Taiwan uh, during this period. So, you know, on the other hand, I would argue that our strategy towards Russia has failed uh, leading up to this war, right? Deterrence didn't work. Sanctions didn't work. We've been seemingly reactive. We were caught by surprise at how poorly the Russian military performed. And so we've leveraged that. uh, But it was not, I would argue, part of a grand strategy that we had. Um, So yes, there's a twofer, but like the Russians, I think we were surprised uh, and, you know, it raises questions about how we're assessing their military uh, capability. When I was uh, studying the Soviet military, there was a lot of emphasis put on demographics and on command and control and on logistics and things like that, which I think a lot of that has been lost um, in and the focus on hardware, focusing on budgets, focusing on uh, postures. Um, and I think we've seen what what we've been missing uh, with that. And as a result, I think the administration has tried to leverage this, has tried to accent the difficulties of mounting any kind of offensive uh, territorial grab uh, in its signaling to China. But I, like I said, I don't see this as we were not out in front of this. Um, I think we've leveraged it uh, during the case, although I give the administration early props in making sure that China understood that we are not just preoccupied with Ukraine, that we see that connection in that in that sort of informal delegation that they sent early on. Phil. 
Thank you, uh, Professor Stolberg. I was wanting to bring it back a little bit more um, to what people here at home are thinking. And I want to um, maybe dig into something you alluded to at the top of the program, which is why is it important for us as Americans to stay engaged with these faraway issues? Right. And specifically, I'm thinking about maybe, um, you know, uh, 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 say a, a working mom in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, or as Senator Nunn and I call it down here in Georgia, in the little town of Concord, Georgia, uh, for people living day to day in their lives, they're facing so many challenges right now, right? With inflation at the highest it's been in 40 years uh, and, and, you know, home values where they are. I mean, there's just there's just so many challenges right now. So when someone's like having trouble getting baby formula, for example, and then they pick up a newspaper and read that we're talking about spending another 40 billion dollars in the Ukraine situation, Help us help us understand why this is such a vital thing for us to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. Well, I mean, I think there are two points. One is economic. One is strategic. And I think the economic point is what we were talking about before, is that the increasing interdependencies. And we have to remember this war didn't just occur out of nowhere. It occurred in a context. Right. We were already facing inflationary uh, challenges, supply uh, chain problems with this war. Right. It is uh, those problems have become they've become accentuated, especially the inflationary issues, given the the impact on energy prices. Uh, and we now live in a world where not only is oil interdependent, globally interdependent. So when prices go get high in one part of the world, they reverberate in another part of the world. Uh, but natural gas is increasingly becoming that uh, given liquefied natural gas uh, development. So. We should be concerned about these kinds of conflicts, especially in the middle of Europe, where we do so much trading that has a direct impact on our own economy, especially in a context where we were, we were facing uh, inflationary uh, trends to begin with. So I think that this war has accentuated that link in that regard. The other one, which you mentioned Senator Nunn, and he would, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the strategic issues that are at stake for us. Because again, if we don't understand the boundaries of competition that occurs across all of these different political, economic, energy, strategic lines, we can readily blunder into a, a secondary, uh, blunder into a primary issue for us where our national interests are at stake uh, with Russia uh, and turning a secondary concern materially into a primary concern. So we have a lot at stake here because, as I mentioned earlier, the international arena is undergoing transition. And many of the old rules and institutions that we had in place worked well for a previous era, but are being taxed and arguably maybe not appropriate given, you know, the trade and data and services as opposed to uh, trade, the role of financial institutions. These are, these are institutions that are not as well developed uh, for an evolving landscape that then have direct implications for us. And especially when countries like Russia see those different domains, uh, financial, energy, uh, economics, as part of their calculus of war, so therefore, and elections, uh, that part of their, where they feel they can intervene, given that they think that they're already at war with us, where we don't necessarily think we're at war, but we treat those issues as out of bounds when they intervene, that then leads to, it can lead to a slippery slope of escalation. And that's why we need to be concerned about it. 
uh, because the boundaries are not clear and we are in increasingly in an interdependent world and we were facing these trends uh, towards uh, inflation and already having supply uh, chain problems um, going into this crisis. You know, you, you raise a uh, in, in, in explaining that answer raises a question about the role of sanctions. And I know before the um, before the actual shooting began, before the war began, when there was a buildup, you you wrote about gray zone conflicts. And, and one of the areas is, is sanctions. And also getting back to an earlier point about uh, people just having different uh, countries, having different perspectives about things. Um, you know, you've explained about how the, the U.S. and Russia view sanctions differently. Uh, and I wonder if you could uh, explain that. And also now that there have been heavy sanctions put on uh, Russia from all over the world, has that uh, I mean, is, is it? Is, has that changed any uh, the has the role of sanctions changed any? Are they effective and how do both sides view them? The United States, we generally think about sanctions as an alternative to war, right? They can be an adjunct to war at times, but they're separate. It's separate. They're, they're, we use this as, as to signal. We use this to put pressure on a, a state as opposed to using our military force. Sometimes we use these sanctions to prepare the ground for using military force, but they're treated as separately. And once we uh, escalate from sanctions to the use of kinetic force, then we consider ourselves at war. The Russian view has been, uh, one, they've, they've uh, not seen sanctions as, le- as a legitimate inst- um, instrument of policy especially unilateral sanctions. Uh, the only sanctions that they uh, officially acknowledge are multilateral sanctions uh, that, say, are issued by the, the UN. Um, so they, they have questioned the legitimacy of that. But I think really since the, you know, 2012, 2016, the concept of war has begun to morph uh, in Russia, where war is not just about kinetics, about military violence. Uh, it, it, you know, they now talk about war uh, as posing a threat to a regime through colored revolutions, right? And information technologies that can embolden, you know, third columns and other uh, opposition forces uh, that can pre- present uh, uh, risks of survival to that to that regime. And so, uh, in that context, Russia has blurred their con- uh, 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 the concept of peace and war. So they see that using economics, information, um, energy are all part of being at war. Those are instruments of war in this broader context of war that's not just about uh, violence. When we issue sanctions on Russia, they see it in the context of already being at war, and therefore they feel that it's legitimate to respond, not necessarily reciprocally, reciprocally with sanctions, but to maybe escalate uh, their use of cyber uh, and information warfare or potentially even kinetic warfare in different parts of the world. So we have very different understandings of this. Now, I think in the Ukraine context, they've seen our resort to sanctions as a weak response. And as a result, where we were uh, thinking about using sanctions as an instrument to deter Russia's behavior or to punish Russia's behavior since 2014, the Russians have really seen that as a sign of weakness. 
you know, if you look at the way the sanctions were crafted, they were designed to impose targeted pain on certain individuals, sectors of the Russian economy, and tried to minimize the cost, the blowback, the cost on us. And so for the Russian perspective is that, well, we didn't want to have any uh, pain. We didn't want to incur in costs uh, by doing this. So they felt that they could escalate uh, their behavior because there was a limit to how much we would do. We cannot just think about sanctions and ratcheting up the pressure without thinking about how we're going to relieve the pressure on our allies or ourselves. And two, we need to also create off-ramps to these sanctions, because at some point, we're going to want to engage Russia in either addressing um, some kind of stable situation in Ukraine, and then ideally going back and addressing that 30-year problem that we talked about earlier. And that's going to require titrating these sanctions. But up to now, those sanctions don't have any sort of end date or conditions for removal other than Russia give up uh, whatever its policies are. So these are some challenges, I think, that sanctions as an instrument of policy really face. They cause pain, but they're not necessarily successful by themselves. They require complementary actions, either on the ground, the military assistance, as we're seeing with Ukrainians, but also offsetting the pain that they're causing to our allies and ourselves. So the, so the governments uh, need to intervene more, to, to create those, the, the infrastructure, create alternative supplies um, of natural gas down the road. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman and I, and Phil Smith, our National Field Director, are discussing the war in Ukraine with Dr. Adam Stelberg, Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Phil Smith and I are discussing the war in Ukraine with Dr. Adam Stelberg, Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Um, Phil, uh, we've been dancing around a uh, question uh, for our entire show today about this war in Ukraine. I think you've got a, a good question to sort of tie all these things together. Well, we've been talking about on ramps and off ramps, Russian expansion, NATO expansion. There's so many things happening. The Ukrainians as underdogs. And uh, but at the end of the day, maybe the most vital question is what constitutes victory? That's a great question. And I would argue that none of the parties uh, has really come to grips with reconciling their absolute version of victory with the long term nature of the problem that's before us. So if, if you look at Ukraine, they want Russia out of Ukraine, uh, at, you know, as they defined it, uh, including Crimea. Uh, Russia obviously lays claim to uh, Crimea and points to referenda, a referendum there and uh, looks to obviously uh, lay claim to parts of uh, eastern uh, Ukraine. The United States increasingly uh, has begun to even uh, talk about, you know, basically, you know, watching and encouraging uh, the weakening of the Russian military such that they can't uh, mount any kind of uh, offensive uh, incursion in the future. And so these are not reconcilable. Uh, they're absolute. Uh, but the nature of conflict, like I mentioned to you before, is really ongoing. 
Uh, and at some point, uh, the parties are going to have to have more of a relative understanding of what victory is. How much territorial integrity is Ukraine willing to, to accept? How much um, of the costs of securing territory and uh, uh, bolstering uh, these uh, you know, manufactured historical claims is what Russia willing to, to promote? How much of the weakening of Russia is the United States and NATO willing to accept in return for rec, you know, stable uh, situation on the ground in Ukraine and trying to redress the 30-year problem of a, of a Euro-Atlantic security architecture where Russia, no matter who's in the Kremlin, is going to have a stake in that situation. So it strikes me that understanding what victory is right now is the problem. We, you know, the, the actors do not have a clear, or at least have not articulated clear understandings of what a relative victory would mean in an ongoing competitive, but stable relationship uh, that they're going to need to forge. Now, you know, there are reasons why the United States may not want to get out in front of Ukraine when it comes to uh, the security issues within Ukraine. But the United States does have issue, concerns and security concerns that, that are outside of Ukraine, in your, which have to do with the, the Euro-Atlantic security architecture. And up to now, it seems like we've been uh, primarily focused on uh, what victory means within Ukraine, as opposed to what victory may mean in this broader uh, architecture. And it strikes me that now as the tide of battle, or we seem to be, you know, gravitating towards a more of a, of a more protracted uh, conflict, uh, that the United States needs to begin to think about that architecture and how we can help shape uh, the incentives for those other parties who may have, for very obvious reasons, absolute interests at this point, to see a relative opportunity for victory in a participating in some kind of Euro-Atlantic strategic uh, architecture that satisfies at least a modicum of stability in Ukraine and ties it to that broader equation. And that's where it strikes me the role of the United States would be, but it requires uh, having much more um, concerted understanding of what victory means outside of Ukraine, uh, the, battle, the battles under, uh, taking place in Ukraine. So do I get the, the do I get to ask the last question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to ask what I think is probably an impossible question, um, but I'm going to try anyway and see where we go. I'm real curious about the long term disruptive effects or the potential long term disruptive effects of this of this war in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, we've touched on on some of them, you know, but I, I'm thinking of things in terms of energy security, geopolitical boundaries and alliances. Things like currency, um, you know, and, and the the rise and fall of, of Bitcoin, the, the the nature of war. I think after uh, you know the U.S. experience in the Middle East, we thought that the nature of war was changing to something that was you know more more urban and, and fought with drones. But here we are, you know, the Ukrainians are fighting a, a traditional you know a land war uh, in in their own country. So, is it possible to to look forward, you know, five years and and say? you know, and identify some of the, the 
the permanent changes that are a result of, of this conflict? And uh, let me just add my addendum is it could be disruptive. They could be salutary. <laughs> right. Point. Right. And that's a great uh, addendum, because I would say on the energy security front, I think the big picture is that this is probably going to expedite the energy transition uh, that we were talking about. I think Europe in particular is going to be front and center. And I think that we're going to see a much more commitment to uh, moving off of uh, or expediting, I should say, the transition from the natural gas to the alternatives, uh, especially in Europe. Um, question mark may be where nuclear fits into that, um, but we'll have to wait and see on that front. So I think that could be a salutary uh, impact in, the, in terms of the, the broad view. I think that one of this, this war has really highlighted, though, is not just the primary impacts, but the secondary impacts. And you mentioned food uh, issues. Obviously, this is really showing how Africa uh, and other parts of the world really take the brunt of a lot of these uh, these uh, wars that are taking place in other parts of the world. Uh, and we don't really uh, recognize that. And that's going to be a longstanding challenge that we're going to have to address. So sort of the knock-on effects, uh, not just of solving for uh, the wheat shortage in, in Europe, uh, but also dealing with the longer-term uh, downstream issues in other markets uh, across the globe. So I think this is underscoring the globaliz- that globalization, while it's taken a lot of knocks and there are a lot of different national interpretations of what globalization means, there's no denying that, uh, that there, is, uh, there are dimensions of globalization going on here that we need to address. The nature of war, I would argue that uh, Ukraine in many ways has been an aberration in, in a lot of senses because it is a hot war in the middle of Europe, and we haven't seen this since World War II. I don't see many of those um, replicating themselves uh, based on this. But what I do think is we're going to be in store for a long-term competitive relationship between great powers that are going to use all instruments of influence. So a- information, obviously, we're seeing energy, economics, high tech. All of these things are going to be instruments of a competitive uh, nature. And so a big challenge, I think, coming out of this is in the high tech space, uh, you know, is one of the real interesting dynamics in the in the uh, economic um, war uh, wage with Russia is that the United States has, has come up with a novel item of embargoing uh, technologies that use software designed in the United States, you know, semiconductors, for example, we're not manufacturing a lot of same semiconductors, but they're using our patents and our designs. Um, that's opening up a whole new space for how to think about high-tech uh, competition. And I think that's going to be uh, the next frontier in, in com- competition, especially with China, um, uh, moving forward. And so that, stay tuned on that. We're already seeing that discussion between the United States and the EU uh, manifesting itself. On the financial side, yeah, I think we, we are in a world where we, it's a little terra incognito here. Uh, we've, we've exacted these... Uh, uh, punishing financial sanctions. But again, we don't know what what's part of policy or the reaction that's part of policy or part of de-risking that's autonomous of, of the policy. And is that de-risking going to also lead to other countries to realize that they need to have other kinds of currencies that they rely on? And here, I would not be so concerned about Bitcoin because at the end of the day, Bitcoin has to you know, come up above ground and there has to be a there there and central banks are trying to to work those issues in the Treasury Department's working those issues. But I do think 
you've are you know the year you know years prior to this we were seeing an ebbing of the dollars uh, role and I would argue this this unprecedented leveraging of the dollar is going to downstream lead to other countries to think about diversifying uh, their currencies and their trading so that they're not as dependent. And here, I would say the euro may be the bigger challenge uh, here. So again, it's going to be putting more pressure on rethinking our partnership with our allies, uh, first and foremost, in the 21st century. Uh, so that we're on the same page in high tech and financial issues that are increasingly interdependent, but and to deal with those downstream effects like countries in the in Africa and others who are outside of the main event, if you will, uh, of these financial and economic trade wars that are taking place with, between the United States and and Russia or Western the West and, and the East or uh, the Far East. You know, I. I think that uh, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, all the time we have for this week. Uh, But I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Adam Stolberg, for a really terrific uh, tour of the uh, guided tour of the Ukrainian conflict and and what it may mean in the bigger sense, in the uh, geopolitical sense. Uh, And we certainly uh, thank you and and hope that you will give our best to uh, Senator Nunn at the uh, Sam Nunn School of International Affairs, where you are the chair. Um, That's all for this week. Uh, Thank you, Tori. Thank you, Phil. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 